This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Victor Begg. Victor is an entrepreneur, an author, an activist, a peacemaker, a community leader, an organizer, and a good neighbor. Victor, thank you for joining the conversation, and uh, Ramadan Mubarak. Thank you very much for having me, Andy, and I appreciate greetings of Ramadan. It's a month of fasting. It's a month that we fast for 30 days. It's no different from the other faiths where they also fast, a little differently in our, in our faith, but uh, it, it's a common practice. Now, besides having this really long resume of entrepreneur and author and activist and peacemaker and community leader, uh, tell us more about, about you. Tell us who Victor is. Well, actually, my name was Ghalib. Can you pronounce Ghalib? Just call me Victor. That's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's my, even my wife couldn't pronounce it. It's... Uh, an Arabic word. Uh, I'm told my grandfather, when I was born, he opened the Quran and put a finger on a word. It, it turned out to be Ghalib, which means victorious. So I changed my name to Victor. I came to America in 1970. And I came to study. Uh, first before I settled down my goal was to start a business which I did that was in Detroit I met my wife we started a business we had kids and uh, then I accidentally got involved I call myself an accidentally accidental activist because there were things going on at the time back in actually in late 70s, early 80s with the Iranian revolution. That was the first experience of Islam with America, and it wasn't a pleasant one. At that time, when I came to Detroit, 
there were two mosques, and today there are more than 50. The community was very small. Actually, there was no such thing as a Muslim American. We were known as, uh, I came from India, so I was an Indian Muslim. There were Arab Muslims. Among the Arabs, there were, of course, Lebanese, uh, Egyptians, Yemeni, and so forth. So we were identified with ethnicity, and, and then were African Americans. And African Americans were known as black Muslims at the time because of uh, what Elijah Muhammad had started, which was which was not really the Sunni or, or Shia Islam. It was his own invention. So there was a lot of confusion about uh, who the Muslims were. And when we had this Iranian revolution, you know, I started to hear about Islam on the radio as I was going to school and started a business. I was a secular person. You know, my father used to go to the mosque twice a year. They say, you know, some Christians go to church on Christmas and Easter. They're called Creasters. So I was... Uh, a Muslim just attended the mosque twice a year, and sometimes we prayed on Friday. So I wasn't a religious person. However, when I heard about what's going on in Iran, I felt uh, I, I felt that I need to speak up because I didn't agree with some of the things that were going on. So I used to call the radio stations and uh, try to articulate, uh, and then they received me. And I'm a writer, so I wrote an op-ed piece, which I regularly write. If you Google me, you will see a bunch of my editorials to to articulate how I feel, and I was hoping that would also convey how the rest of the Muslim world, other than some of those crazy people who are doing what they were doing, demonstrating, uh, truly feel uh, with what's going on. They rejected my op-ed piece. And they didn't know how to deal with it, actually. That's, that's probably why they did, because there was no such thing as a Muslim American. Who's this guy trying to represent the Muslims? Well, I used to have a five-store furniture chain. I used to advertise with the newspapers, so I said, I'll pay for it. Well, they charged me, guess how much? $13,000. Good gracious. <laughs> and that too, they, you know, I, I, I protested. I said, look, this is a nonprofit thing. Uh, they said, no, it's, it's a political ad. Well, anyways, we paid. Then that gave me... Um, that experience gave me uh, the, the, the thought of getting involved. And that's why I call myself accidental activist. And it paid off. Uh, and I developed relationship with the media, with the got engaged uh, in, the, in, the, in the civic area and interfaith. Uh, I served on the Community Service Commission. I was quite involved with the Republican Party. 
the governor had appointed me on the Community Service Commission. And the same newspaper in 2009 recognized me as the Michiganian of the Year. So activism pays. And activism in the sense, uh, some people take activism as uh, someone who's out there uh, demonstrating like the Me Too movement uh, or all Black Lives Matter. To me, activism is, is, it could be a very positive thing without uh, demonstrating out on the streets. So that kind of activism I got involved with and I continue to to be active in the community. I came here for retirement to Florida, the Treasure Coast, and I thought I'll have a quiet life, uh, write a book. However, I, I used to attend this little mosque here, and one day I woke up with the news of uh, the, uh, the the shooting, the Pulse Club in Orlando. 49 people died, and then, uh, you know, the first thing Muslims pray when they hear of any violence or shooting, say, God, let it not be a, a Muslim. We should be thinking of uh, those who are the victims. However, we know if it's Muslim, we're going to get uh, 57 times more coverage. So that's the first thing we do. But it turned out to be a Muslim, and it turned out to be someone from a family we knew. So the local community here knew my background. They wanted me to be a spokesperson. I said, forget it, I'm not going to do that. However, you know, I got involved here. I still am. I'm participating in the interfaith group here on the Treasure Coast, uh, I write for the papers, I'm doing cultural competency training for the police department. So my retirement is out the door. Now, you've been featured in various uh, Detroit media outlets, Washington Post, ABC, CBS, NPR, and USA Today. Did you ever think this would happen? No. No, that wasn't the plan. My plan was to, to be like everyone else. My story would have been just like anyone else's. So if I write my memoir, uh, it would have been, uh, I came to America, started a business, started a family, and lived a happy life. Uh, I, I, leave, I live a happy life. I'm not saying I'm not. This is the only country in the world that accommodates uh, uh, no matter you know, what your faith is, no matter what your background is. And here you can speak, you can get active, you can write for the papers, and you can build a community. So I'm, I'm grateful to live in this country. I want to, I, I find this is the way I can give back, I can contribute. Uh, and Muslim community in particular, I feel, has a responsibility. So there are dual reasons why I'm involved. It's not just because responding to bigotry. It's also, I feel it's, it's important uh, to do our part. Every community has done it. From the time the pilgrims arrived, there was uh, uh, 
Protestant ethics built the company, the Catholics contributed, the, the Jewish community did their part. I think Muslims have to make their contribution. I thank you for having this uh, Baptist-Muslim dialogue, which is so much needed. In February, you, you released a new book, Our Muslim Neighbors, uh, Achieving the American Dream and Immigrants Memoir. This book takes us into your journey of building a successful business while facing unthinkable xenophobia and religious intolerance uh, from your neighbors. What was going on in your journey that you needed to write this book now? The two things people ask, why did you write the book? And what would the readers get out of it? Well, why did I r write a book? Uh, after writing it, I asked my publicist what genre it fits into. And she said, there are many. First thing is legacy. Our grandson, Adam, he's 71 years younger than me. He was born on my birthday. So I wanted to leave something behind for as a legacy for our future generations. My great-grandfather had written his memoir, and I have a copy of it. So I said that will be one reason. Then uh, I have been part of the history of Islam, the recent history of Islam, in the last 50 years since I came to this country, and I have seen how it became part of the American scene. So people said we need to preserve that. And I built a, a council of Islamic organizations in, in Michigan, it's called Michigan Community Council. And I developed, uh, uh, with the help of other, the Interfaith Leadership Council. Uh, my wife's also been involved. She has started a group called Women's Interfaith Solutions uh, Metro Detroit uh, while we were there. So all these things are, are part of uh, activism, which uh, I like to, like to leave behind. Uh, for me, building the relationship with the media, getting involved in civic engagement, uh, building the business, of course. 60% uh, uh, of the Americans don't know a Muslim, Andy. In my family story, in all its vulnerabilities, offers a window into the life and beliefs of ordinary uh, Muslim Americans. You really get to know them who they are. As an accidental activist, I write about the experiences of a vulnerable community. So those are, that was, was a good reason to, uh, to write. Uh, so as I said, there are several reasons why I wrote the book. Uh, now, what do you get out of it? Well, as I said, 60% of the Americans don't. That's pure research. That's, that's not statistics I'm throwing out. Uh, we are not a monolith community. The Muslim American community is the, is the, is the only community that doesn't have a majority race. We we have been here since long before Columbus. There are Muslims in in West Africa. If they had gotten into a boat and drifted 
they would arrive at the South American shores, dead or alive. And there were Muslims who sailed with Columbus uh, uh, after the, the Inquisition in Spain. Uh, Columbus was after the spice route and the Muslims were the navigators. So, so we've been here for a long, long time. 30, up to 30% of the slaves, they say, uh, who built the southern economy were Muslims. So, so I have a narration of, of our, our existence here in, in, in America. So it's an educational tool, and my story is also a true blue story. Uh, I write about achieving the American dream with many ups and downs and much hard work. It's a combination of uh, of, of, uh, uh, of of many stories. Uh, there are uh, reviews uh, on Amazon. You can get some. Idea. The, the most important thing I would say why I wrote a book is for my neighbors. You know, we lived, as I said, in uh, uh, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, uh, on a one-acre land up on the hill. We had no neighbors, although I was very much involved. I was on the school board. That's another story. I ran on a Muslim-Jewish ticket. And then many people find that very interesting. And I built a mosque there. And I knew people. It's not that we were living in isolation. We were very active in the community. However, we had no neighbors. So when we moved to Treasure Coast, sold our house, I closed my business because the kids had moved out. They were all Ivy League school graduates. No one wanted to run a furniture business seven days a week. So I, I closed my business, moved here. We have 90 neighbors. Initially, you know, we were apprehensive. It was a charged political environment. My wife wears a hijab. She's, by the way, she's a convert. She was a Hindu who accepted Islam. And then she wears the hijab of her own choice, as my daughter does, born and, born and raised here. So she was apprehensive. She said, this is a very conservative area, although we are Republicans, but we don't you know, advertise that. The only thing stands out is our hijab. And we're moving in here. We love this kind of building. We live across from the beach. And I have the Indian River Lagoon behind our building. Uh, we love it here, but still we were apprehensive. But when we came in, uh, we were we were pleasantly surprised. We were welcomed every Thursday. The neighbors meet here. They call it Thirsty Thursday, and we bring our dishes uh, share, to share. They have gotten to know us. They point out if there is any pork in any of the dishes. So I wanted our neighbors to know who we are. And one of my neighbors, who is an English teacher, initially I wrote 450 pages of manuscript. And I'm not trying to scare your, your listeners. 
book is only 260 pages. Uh, initial manuscript was was 450 pages, and she went through the entire manuscript. Uh, my neighbor, uh, and then I thank my neighbors uh, profusely in my book when I have the acknowledgement in there. So you know, it, it, it's just I mean, it's overwhelmingly. Uh, uh, for us to to be treated that way, and, and I need to know uh, them as much as they know me, and that's through my memoir. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You were very transparent in the book, and this book, um, through your story, is an invitation to get to know, to listen, and to share life with their neighbors. And you wrote, along the way, I realized that most Americans don't know any Muslims, and that heightened bigotry arises because people don't know that our families are just like their families. We share so many community and spiritual values, and we could discover that if we simply reached out, if we simply got to know each other. Um, this is easier for some rather than others. So, so what are some practical ways you can give our listeners, some of which are local church pastors who they have the opportunity to equip and train the members of their congregation on, on how to train and prepare people to, to actually get to know their neighbors? Well, this might sound like marketing, but uh, one way... Just read my book. <laughs> uh, uh, Andy, it, it, it's hard to recall today America's high hopes in the 1990s for world peace, democracy, freedom, and cultural diversity. And here is a reminder. I appeared in 1994 cover story in U.S. News and World Report about how much all Americans share in their deepest spiritual desires. In that story, seven years before 9-11, by the way, 9-11 was, uh, I call it the first day of a new calendar. That's when I, I got involved, as I said, long before that, in the 80s, where this event catapulted people like me uh, into doing much more. So at that time, uh, in that uh, U.S. News report, I told the magazines of millions of readers, and I quoted from there, it's very easy to be a Muslim in the United States. And I had no reason to question that assertion. We need to reclaim that earlier optimism. 
and that focus on our shared values. So, so your uh, suggestion, your question about how to get to, it, it's so important. Uh, as I said, this is the country that represents the values, the human values. Uh, there is no other country in the world. Japan would do that, China, not even India where I was born, although India by 1950 is going to have the largest Muslim population in the world. But it's, it's uh, uh, the survey says it's, it's the most intolerant uh, country in the world as far as the neighbors are concerned. So how to get to Muslim? You need more interaction. As I said, 60% of the Americans haven't met a Muslim. So you are, uh, these are the, you know, I'm, uh, I'm so happy that your uh, council, the, the Baptist council is, is extending the dialogue to the Muslims because, you know, there is a group of Baptists, they wouldn't want to talk to us. Although, you know, we have very robust uh, dialogue, interfaith dialogue in America, and the young people come naturally together, and there are many, many interactions going on. There are interfaith comedy clubs, there are interfaith community service projects. Uh, uh, so, so getting to know your neighbor, inviting one of the Muslim leaders to come and present about Islam in your church, uh, if your church members are not unhappy about that. Because, you know, I work with uh, Joe LaGuardia here. He's uh, with the First Baptist Church in Vero Beach, and, and he's one of your members, I guess, this church. And he tells me sometimes he has an issue with many of the members inviting the Muslim community, and I understand there is a challenge even uh, ecumenical interaction within the Christian community. However, you know, it's so important, it's so important to to get to know uh, your neighbor, and that the only way it can happen is, uh, uh, is learning about uh, about another Muslim uh, by inviting a leader. Also, there is much available on internet. There is a, a website that I recommend. It's called uh, Islami City, I S L A M I C I T Y, just like it sounds, islamicity.com. So there are many ways uh, uh, if people are interested, because I could give uh you know the short explanation but you if you really need to know uh, the other you need to spend a little time because there's so much mis misunderstanding about islam if you read the news and the, the tweets hmm. i don't know well, if that answers your question no it does and i i think one of the the most tremendous misunderstandings, which you write about, um, is uh, association with violence. And, um, 
I want to talk about the discriminatory association of violence with Muslims. And you wrote in your book, and you, you said it earlier, um, your prayer of all Muslim Americans, um, anytime there's an explosion or a mass shooting is, oh God, let it not be a Muslim. And the fact of the matter is that America has been the victim of more domestic terrorism from white, lower, and middle-class males than any other demographic. In the last few years, white supremacists have committed hate crimes and acts of violence against non-Christian religious groups. In fact, um, Pew Research study found that a number of assaults against Muslims in the United States rose significantly in the last few years. Um, in 2016, there was 127 reported victims of aggravated or simple assault compared to 91 the year before um, and 93 in 2001. And these numbers um, still dwarf um, the 296 victims of anti-Muslim intimidation in 2001. So what can we do as, um, as neighbors to help change the conversation uh, to bring facts into the matter, to, to rid America of this discriminatory association of, of violence with the Muslim community? Well, misunderstanding the ignorance breeds violence. What you just mentioned, too many people, not many people that pay attention. And when a Muslim commits a crime, uh, which we deplore the, where there's a clear passage, uh, the, the verse in the Quran that says, God is with those who do beautiful deeds. It's a concept of Ihsan uh, in, in Islam. Uh, so they are not doing these beautiful deeds. And why aren't they doing it? Uh, you know, when I came to this country in 1970, I never heard of Islamic and Muslim terrorism. Even with the Iranian revolution, it was Iran in the news. It's only after uh, Imam Khomeini issued that fatwa, and I write about that in my book. Uh, I was really disturbed about that. Uh, to kill the author, uh, it was crazy. But the first word revealed in the Quran is Ikhra, which means pen. Uh, and in the same verse, the, the God speaks of when he, the first revelation came to Prophet Muhammad, read in the name of your Lord who has taught you what you knew not by a pen. So both pen and uh, uh, read are, are part of our, our faith. So to issue a fatwa to kill a writer, I mean, that, that was too much for me. So what I'm trying to explain here is the, this Islamic terrorism did not exist, or nor it was known. Yes, there was problems in the Middle East. That was because of the land. Uh, Yasser Arafat, his uh, hero was Che Guevara. There was George Habash, a Christian, who was head of the Black September. They committed some of the terrorist acts. But I never felt it had to do anything with Islam. But this cycle of war, terror, and Islamophobia has just escalated. I'm, pray I'm praying that there wouldn't be another war with Iran. It's, it's only going to make things worse. So this terrorism that you hear about uh, is as a result of, of uh, uh, talking about the Islamic State. Where did that come from? 
that was initially, uh, and then they attracted crazy people from all over the world. If you do the research, you can Google it and see. You don't have to take my word. Some of these people who went from Europe, young people, they got their knowledge of, of Islam from uh, a book called Islam for Idiots. You know, they're very poor knowledge uh, of, of their own religion, but they were offered a dream. Uh, my police sergeant, when I do the competency training, explains it very well. Their logic is like that of some of the inner city gangs who find uh, uh, that they have support from from their fellow gang members. So, uh, I mean, these are the facts. So if, we, if people get to know, they better understand and the, all the statistics that you just related. Uh, you know, just the other day, this man, this man who attacked the synagogue, he's a church-going member. You never call him a Christian terrorist. I mean, he was motivated by a white supremacist uh, ideology. Uh, and you would, you don't even refer to him as a white supremacist. They just called him a, a crazy guy, a lone wolf. When it comes to a Muslim, it's always Islam. However, it is because of what is going on uh, in in some of the uh, the countries in the Middle East after the Iraq War, and that has resulted. Uh, and the oppression that they are facing around the world, really, you know, the Uyghurs in in China, uh, they are, they are interned a million of them. Uh, the the Buddhists are committing the terror against Rohingya Muslims. Uh, so, and the occupation, of course, in in Palestine. Uh, those are the the reasons why we see the violence. Muslim Americans, uh, I mean, we're building the community here. The mosque I built, by the way, you know, I've, I can identify with you in the sense that I am a mosque builder. I know you are a congregational builder, church builder, uh, and I have helped build three mosques. Uh, one of them, actually, I we helped, uh, I helped build from scratch. And it's it's very much involved with interfaith work, the Unity Center, and it also was designed to bring our diverse community together. That's why I call it the Unity Center. So those are the things Muslim community is doing. It's it's part of our responsibility. However, to get our, our voice out there, you know, we don't have the bullhorn. Occasionally, we get an opportunities like you've given me today. So, uh, you know, we have to do our part, and I appreciate you doing yours. Well, tell us a little bit more about um, your work um, in, in the Interfaith Leadership Council. Um, what were some of the positive outcomes of this council? Um, what were some of the, the challenging aspects of, of pulling this together? Interfaith Leadership Council started off as Interfaith Partners as part of the uh, Michigan Roundtable for Diversity 
and inclusion. It's a major civic organization in in Michigan. Uh, on 9/11, there was a group of uh, religious leaders got together the day after. I got together to do a prayer service. At that prayer service, I raised my hand. I said, "We need more than prayer." Some of the people were trying to pull my hand down, uh, but afterwards, uh, uh, Reverend Dan Buttry, uh, he's a Baptist, and I think he's, he's part of your organization. Uh, and uh, Reverend Dan Appleyard, an Episcopalian, uh, they came to me and they said, we liked what you heard. So we started a group called Interfaith Partners, and then we invited the Jewish community, and since then it has built under the leadership of a Catholic, uh, Bob Rattel, uh, into Interfaith Leadership Council, and they do a number of projects. They have a Journeys project for the middle school kids, because that's when they form, form their prejudices. So they take them into different uh, places of worship. So they get the experience of, of knowing the other. Uh, they have interfaith programs where, where it's a dialogue. And also uh, Michigan Muslim Community Council, which is part of the interfaith work, uh, we have partnered with the Jewish community. Uh, we call it the Mitzvah Day in Detroit where Muslims and Jews come together to serve the Christians on a Chris, on Christmas Day, because then Chris, Christians could have their holiday while we fill in the soup kitchens and other volunteer organizations. So there's there so much going on, uh, and it, ha it has become a cottage industry now. I'm sure where you are, there's an interfaith group that meets. It's a uh, I mean, it's accepted pretty much in all circles. Even the civic uh, events start with interfaith prayer these days. Uh, the only ones that we find not too interested in interfaith dialogue are, are some Baptist groups, like the Southern Baptists. But we're trying to expand. Uh, we have to reach out to people. Uh, you can't you know, blame others. It's also you have to take the initiative. So we're doing our part. I'm so happy that you do yours. As you said, um, these groups need to do more than pray. So for those that are, are looking to get involved with with interfaith councils, what are what are some things that we can do besides pray? Um, how, how do we create dialogue? How do we create action around these groups? Knowing that gathering and getting to know each other is an important part of that, but then how do we translate that into action? Well, I mean, there are so many different ways, uh, depends on, on action. Uh, just to give you a quick example, when we had that New Zealand uh, attack, uh, 
our mosque hosted a thousand people from different faiths and they came together uh, when the, when what happened in Sri Lanka our mosque was involved with the church to come together so these are uh, the actions to support each other uh, beyond that you know the we serve together in soup kitchens as i said uh, or in christmas time and that more needs to be done in terms of action uh coming together and and doing things uh, i know our islamic relief one of our major organizations they participate in um, disaster relief uh my daughter was part of one of that i think it, it was in louisiana after uh, one of the hurricanes and she was working side by side with uh, an evangelical person initially you know he was uh, kind of sarcastic about her hijab and all that and then they got to know each other when uh, my daughter said when he left he said, it's so good to know you. See, when we come together and do things uh, and make to make things better uh, or provide relief, uh, those are some of the things uh, that can be done and, and they need to be done through organized groups. I had a very interesting uh, from Rick Warren, uh, you know who he is, right? So he came to our convention. He said, I don't want interfaith dialogue. I want interfaith interactions. Because dialogue, we can only go so far because saying we all worship one God is is, is sometimes, you know, it's, 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 it's really not, not the the last thing, because there are there are differences. But when we are doing things together, and he gave an example of uh, the work they were doing in Africa, they wanted to provide relief on on ground. Uh, I forgot which country it is, uh, and there were no churches, but there were mosques. So they they partnered with the mosques uh, to 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 provide the relief services there so so the action part uh, organizations to organization is one thing and this is one thing we learned in Detroit initially it was person to person interactions and Reverend Dan Crickbaum God bless his soul he's passed away he was the head of the inner uh, of the Michigan Roundtable he suggested we should start something with congregation to congregation so that will uh, broaden the field. And him being a, also a business person, thought that will also help bring some dollars in if the mosques and the churches contribute to this work. So there are so many ways you, you can do within your capacity. Well, for those that want to stay connected with Victor, you can follow him on Twitter. He also has a website, ourmuslimneighbors.com. Uh, go out and purchase Our Muslim Neighbors wherever books are sold. Well, Victor, thank you for, for modeling the way, and thank you for inviting us to live out 
our faith group's invitation to love our neighbors by actually getting to know our neighbors. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.